This is The Lydia Project, Conversations with Christian Women. Our name is inspired by the life-changing conversation that Lydia had with Paul, recorded in Acts 16. On this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of women whose lives have also been impacted by the truth of the gospel. Your hosts, Tori Walker and Taryn Hayes, hope that you too will be challenged and inspired by how the gospel truths are being worked out in the lives of their guests, ordinary women who serve an extraordinary God. Today, your host is Taryn Hayes. Hello and welcome again to the Lydia Project Conversations with Christian Women. I'm Taryn Hayes and today's episode is another book club episode. We've had a great time reviewing many excellent books here over the last couple of years and in this year we've discussed four so far and we'll be discussing another one today. Um, Just for a quick recap, at the beginning of this year, Tori and I discussed Growing Together, Taking Mentoring Beyond Small Talk and Prayer Requests by Melissa Kruger. It's a gem of a book about one-to-one mentoring relationships. Highly recommend it. I also spoke with the mother-in-law and daughter-in-law co-authors, Barbara and Stacey Riach, about their book, Making Room for Her. It was such a delightful chat about the importance of developing a healthy, God-glorifying relationship with a new mum or daughter-in-law and what that looks like uh, practically. And then Dr. Diane Langberg was my next guest. Dr. Langberg is globally recognized for her 50 years of clinical work with trauma victims, including those who have suffered trauma within the church. Her book, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church, helpfully unpacks what many people have experienced but haven't been able to articulate. I've actually had feedback from several listeners who have said that they found this episode to be particularly helpful in helping them recognize or process trauma that they themselves have experienced in a church context. Next on our list was uh, Dr. Jonathan Andrews with his book, The Reconnected Heart, How Relationships Can Help Us Heal. It was really good to have this book on the heels of Dr. Langberg's book because it provided some really helpful tools for healing from relational trauma of all kinds. Highly recommended. We really had a great chat. And then today we're going to be listening to my chat with Stephen McAlpine about his book, Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says We Shouldn't. Stephen is a man of many talents and areas of expertise. He's the husband of Jill McAlpine, whom I interviewed a while ago. He's also a pastor, church planter, a writer, a podcaster, a runner. And he's also an author of not one, but soon to be two published books. He's also somewhat of an expert on the subject of church abuse and has been interviewed internationally on the topic alongside other people like Dr. Diane Langberg, who featured here in June, and others like Chuck DeGroote, who wrote When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and spiritual abuse, and then Wade Mullins, who wrote the aptly titled Something's Not Right, about being able to recognize wrongdoings in church leadership when we feel that niggling sense that something is not right. In fact, it is through Stephen's work on this subject that I first got to know him. He's written a three-part series on bullying behavior in the church that I found very helpful. Uh, Stephen's wealth of knowledge and his generosity in sharing has actually been quite invaluable, and I highly recommend his work on that topic. Unfortunately, we don't have time to unpack all his wisdom on these matters in this chat, but I will post links in the show notes to the resources that I've mentioned if this topic is one you'd like or need to explore for yourself. This chat is primarily focused on Stephen and his journey to faith and his number one bestseller book, Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says We Shouldn't. 
Stephen has a lot of insight into where our world is today in terms of tolerating or vilifying Christians in our secular culture, or as he calls it, our sexual culture. And in this chat, we're going to unpack the main message of his book and his thoughts on where our culture is moving and how we as Christians should be thinking and praying and living in an increasingly hostile culture. Without further ado, though, here is Stephen McAlpine. Good to have you joining the Lydia Project today, Steve. Oh, it's great to be with you. I've uh, listened to a few of your podcasts in, in the past, and obviously my wife was on one, so. <laughs> yeah. Good, supportive husband there. Um, actually, first, before we start anything, I wanted to say thank you to you, because you've been very instrumental in my journey and trying to understand the nature of the beast that is abuse within the church. And of course, you've already mentioned, um, without you, I don't think I would have had the wonderful opportunity to interview your wife, Jill. Mm. That's episode 76, I think, for those who haven't listened. But yes, yeah, so I wanted to say thank you. Thank you for taking the time a few years ago to answer my initial questions and helping point me in the right direction in my research. Um, yeah, it's been incredibly helpful. So thank you. Yeah, th thanks, Taryn. It feels like there's two sides to the things I do. It's writing about what the cultural issue facing the church, but also the internal issues facing the church as well. There are some issues. And that whole um, very heavy shepherding abuse thing, uh, when I sort of sort of pulled that, like it, it felt like a game of kerplonk where you had those marbles in the top, you pull out a straw and I, one straw I pulled and everything sort of seemed to fall down at the same time on these issues. And uh, a lot of people did, you know, privately say, yeah, that was the sad thing. The amount of people that privately got in touch with me to say, this has happened to me and I feel sidelined from church because of it. It was not insignificant amount of people, but mm. it feels like somehow uh, things have changed a little bit. And it, But I, I assume that people don't change that much and things will continue as they are. But it did. it was a costly thing, but it was the right thing to do, I think. Absolutely. And you've actually spoken quite a bit about it on various other platforms and uh, yeah I actually recommend to our listeners to do that if they are concerned about abuse within the church or if they've been impacted by it I would definitely recommend in fact I, I, I've got so many links I'll just pop them in our our show notes we could talk about this for ages it could be a podcast of its own but actually I wanted to focus on the other side that you're very familiar with in fact so familiar that you've written a book on the topic and that is where Christians find themselves today through the lens of the secular world where we as Christians are increasingly being painted in uh, as if we're in the moral wrong for holding a biblical standard and just the implications of that in the workplace, in just in society. Your book's entitled Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World That Says We Shouldn't. And in it, you unpack where we've come from, where we're potentially going, and how we can do that in a way that is honoring of our call as Christians to continue to live for Christ and to share the gospel. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you about that and unpacking that all of that. But before we do, I actually wanted to hear a little bit more about your story, as in how did Stephen McAlpine come to trust Jesus? Yeah, I grew up in Northern Ireland, mom and dad, twin brother, and uh, we went to, uh, I guess, uh, the firebrand Ian Paisley, who ended up being the chief minister of Northern Ireland, as in the premier or whatever you call him, sort of the prime minister of Northern Ireland. They went to his church, my parents. In fact, my parents were became Christian through him, and uh, we were there. Then they left there and went to a Baptist church. But I think it was in Australia when I first had that consciousness of I'm not right with God when I was very young, maybe eight. But my parents brought me up in a in a way that was godly, 
but it's very and it was quite decisionism based so in a baptist tradition in northern ireland uh, it was much more you need to have a time and a place and a day but i did feel that myself that in my own life i need to repent and believe the gospel and i did that at a young age uh, which i don't regret and i still remember it uh, very vividly i think later years were more difficult my parents my dad divorced my mum when I was 17, just before university. So we had lived between Australia and Northern Ireland a few times and were very sort of church and the gospel was part of our lives. And then my dad left and that blew our family apart a little bit. And I think the years between first year uni, doing an arts degree, <laughs> doing a liberal arts degree the month after your parents' divorce isn't uh, conducive to remaining a Christian, I think, <laughs> but God's grace is uh, conducive to remaining a Christian. And so um, I think the age between 17 and 23 were the really tight, difficult years for me growing up, not knowing who I, where I was going to end up, what I was going to do, but very conscious that God was with me and very conscious that I, um, even in the midst of those troubles, uh, needed to stick with him. And I never regretted that, I think. Well, no, I have never regretted that, but it's never, it's, it wasn't easy between those years, but they were formative years for me. And uh, it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s that I sort of got a sense of where I was going and who I was. Uh, my twin brother is not a Christian at all now, and I have other brothers and various half-brothers. So from a family that was Christian in a very slightly fundamentalist setting in Northern Ireland to a very blown-apart, wide, half-Christian, mostly not Christian family members with half-brothers and disconnections everywhere, you wouldn't pick that trajectory in your life 50 years ago, but here we are. <laughs> it, it's interesting how that's happened, I think. Wow. How do you feel about that now when you look back on that? I mean, I imagine there must be some level of great sadness. I think when my dad left my mum and he got divorced again quite a few years later and my mum had always prayed for him and he repented and asked for her forgiveness and he came back to the Lord because he'd left God behind as well. I look back in those years as, um, well, you read the first uh, you know, half of Genesis and the family dynamics at play among the people of God there uh, shouldn't leave you with any surprises. Mm. And I think people say, why did you become a Christian? And I think more the question is now, why do you stay one? It's because you look back and you see God's hand at work in your life over those years. And you see the trajectory of people who've left God behind. Mm. And you also see the incremental decisions that people make as Christians, which although they can in the end be forgiven for, you can't throw a stone in the pond without a lot of ripples. And consequences in our lives uh, always hit us. And we die for a reason because um, imagine if we lived to 10,000. We'd just have, we'd rack up problems and issues more and more. It's by God's grace that there's a resurrection coming yeah. <laughs> after our death. He limits us in life and then he offers us life beyond death and uh, I feel like as I get older I can and I have friends who fall by the wayside Christianly and things like that I think it's only God's grace that keeps us mm. and uh, so it sobers me I think looking back on those times and that makes sense yeah totally totally I think that's a apt word sobers and really helpful to think about the fact that God has actually in his grace limited our lifespan because yes, of course, live long enough and we can do enormous amounts of damage to other people. Yeah. 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 
look, I listened to, I think it was Alistair Begg speaking on something the other day. He's 70 and he was talking about the biggest problem in his own ministry is himself. And that's an interesting statement. But he said that when he was a young man, he thought at 70 he would have it all together. And he realizes that's not how we operate as humans. And uh, it, it, we can become wiser and more godly. But our uh, besetting issues and our worries and griefs and fears are still there. And then they get added to as you age. This sounds very depressing. It's not. But uh, it's realistic in a sense that without Jesus, you wouldn't have much hope. And if you end up in an aged care facility by yourself with no family around you getting sicker and sicker and you wouldn't and you don't have Jesus, I, I just I don't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you ended up at some point at Bible college. You also did a journalism degree. Is that mm. right? Yeah, look, I, I doing a liberal arts degree at Curtin University, majoring in journalism. I was always into writing, and uh, but I didn't think I was cut out to be a journalist, to be honest. Um, I've got a couple of friends who are journalists, and you have a very thick skin from a very young age. And I don't think I had a very thick skin when I was younger. Um, and uh, <laughs> now you do. A friend of mine, yeah, a friend of mine writes for the Australian, and uh, I saw him last week in Melbourne, and he. Uh, yeah he's got a thick skin and he has from a young age and he was a senior journalist very young and I think that you'd have to have that so my maybe my skin thickened up later but I, I kind of fell into a job as a youth worker at a church and that's where I met Jill my wife actually she wasn't yeah. in the youth group I hasten to add but uh, <laughs> she was older but um it was I kind of fell into that job and it was a church that didn't really preach the Bible and didn't believe the central foundational issues in the Bible. And that shocked me a little bit coming from what I think was a fundamentalist background, but not a thickly biblically formed background. And so I realized I need to get some theological training if I'm going to do this. And that's what I did. And I ended up in a good place in Perth, which is now the uh, Trinity Theological College. And it just gave me the framework of understanding the Bible and Jesus at the center of the story, and Jesus making sense of the story and fulfilling it. And I think that's been, that framework has been the thing that's kept me going in ministry for 30 years. Yeah. Um, not just the framework, but the convictions and the confidence out of that framework, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very mirroring of my experience, Sydney. And I didn't go to Bible college, but um, coming into contact and understanding the the framework of the Bible and how Jesus fits into that, and how He is in it, it all, and how the whole story ultimately is about Him, absolutely life changing in so many ways. But definitely in you know leading capacity, but also just having that absolute assurance. It's encouraging to hear that that you as a youth leader could see that because so often I think, especially with, I imagine what was that in the nineties? Yeah, 2000s? yeah, in the in the mid nineties, early to mid nineties, and I could have gone either way, I suppose. But who you hang around really does influence you, and they were lovely people I was working with, but I went, I don't think that they believe what I believe, but I don't yeah. know enough to articulate some of the reasons why I don't agree with them. Because uh, I didn't grow up through the classical channels of good, solid, conservative, evangelical churches with great leaders all the time and MTS training programs and things like that. I didn't have that. So when I went to college and I, uh, I'd i met people at college who kind of knew the framework already because they were, were taught it when they were younger. And I was kind of a bit angry when I was finding stuff out. And how come no one told me about this before? <laughs> Not that my previous experience in church prior to that 
was bad. It just didn't have the same framework of thinking about how the Bible was put together. And that yeah. was that was encouraging to me to learn the Bible, but also, oh, I better make sure other people know this. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. And it takes a certain amount of humility to recognize that. Um, yeah, because I think about how many youth leaders I've had contact with over the years or experience under, and there's definitely a, a division between those who recognize where they're lacking and desire to know more and those who just are like, I'm just going to go for it because there's yeah, a certain amount of self-confidence and and I suppose a bit of arrogance that comes with that and and not learning at all, just kind of no. year in, year out doing the same thing. Sorry. Well, there's a faux humility about, oh, we can't be too certain and have too many convictions about too many things. And uh, I think that's problematic. Like, um, And the word deconstruct, oh, I'm, someone's deconstructing their faith, means that's taken obviously from a critical theory understanding of deconstruction and in the literary sense, because deconstruction is saying, oh, there's a power play underneath what you believe that needs to be exposed. But I don't, that's not how the Bible understands deconstructing. It calls it apostasy, that you love the world more than you love. <laughs> now, I think there's a case when you, your faith becomes mature, but that, that you don't read the Bible and it never says, look, we, we want you to think up big, bright new ideas. Peter says to, you know, I'm handing this on to you. I want to remind you of the things you already know so that later you'll remember them. That doesn't sound like, coming up with some new plans about what Christianity might be about. It sounds like handing on the faith that was for once once delivered to the saints. And I think you there's a way that you can be a stance to the world where you can cope with the cultural and social changes and you aren't necessarily reactive to them, that at the same time holds to the scriptures very strongly. And that's the tension, I think, but also the the promise that I think we have as God's people, that whatever situation we're in, the foundation of the gospel addresses it and gives you the liberty to be able to live in that space and live in the everyday world, but have this foundation uh, without deconstructing the faith. And I think yeah. yeah, that's critical to me. And I think we're in a, a cycle where people are going to come back to something a little stronger and more meaty because everyone's fly, flailing around looking for something and culturally I mean, I was reading an article the other day, for goodness sake, that was a feminist advocating marriage and only <laughs> signing up to the man who promises to look after your children. I'm like, welcome to marriage, you know, welcome to biblical understanding of marriage. Yeah. How's that been working out for you the last 60 years by jettisoning it? The sexual revolution has done a lot for men, but nothing for women. And yeah. Well, it hasn't done much for men either because, no. you know, they're, they're all over the place. Uh, young men in particular, but men were the dominant factor in the whole issue and women are now starting to realise they were shortchanged. Yeah. So we don't have to react hard against that. We just got to say the church needs to make sure its own house is in order so that it's a place of Absolutely. refuge for people and not a place Absolutely. that continues the abuse. So I'm hearing from what you're saying, a lot of the insight that you brought to your book, um, mm. being the bad guys, but what, what ultimately motivated you to write it? Uh, the thing that motivated me to write it the most was the discombobulation that Christians started to feel when they realised, and the title of the book comes from the movie Falling Down, um, where the main character starts the day as a good guy and ends up on the pier at Venice Beach in California, 
um, with the police pointing guns at him. And one of them says to him, come in now and have a talk to these police officers. They're good guys. And he just says, you mean I'm the bad guy? How did that happen? <laughs> and that's the moment Christians are feeling. And it's because Christianity, it, 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 the last 200 years has not been kind to how Christianity has moved forward philosophically. But the it drained away very quickly in the last 10 to 15 years, the framework of Christianity in our Western setting, to the point that Christianity is no longer seen as wrong, but bad. Mm. No longer seen as foolish, but harmful. And people are saying, how did that happen? I wanted to be able to go into my workplace and disagree with people who hail to a different ethic than I do and would all be happy and would all get on. Because the postmodern promise was it'll be a marketplace of ideas. The postmodernity was never about that. It was about undermining the framework and constructs of what we've got in place in our world and saying those things are power plays. So to hold to a Christian understanding of um, family or community or how religion works uh, is seen as um, a power play to dominate people. And suddenly we were cast in the bad guy light. And there's a whole iceberg under the tip of the sexual stuff going on at the moment or the exclusivity claims of Jesus. And all of it is around the whole idea of uh, who's calling the shots and why. So no one wants a zombie apocalypse, right? Everyone wants the culture to keep going on. But they're saying, can we take out the foundation stones that have built the Western culture for the last you know, 1,500 years and replace them with something else and it still stand? And they're saying it can stand, and I'm saying it can't stand. And I'm also saying the fact that it isn't standing, you need to hide it. And so what you get is uh, sort of a hiding the fact that we are absolutely falling apart culturally. Anxiety uh, levels are off the charts. Uh, young people are confused. Suicide rates are still high. Abuse still happens. And somehow, but if we keep going this way, somehow there'll be a, a nirvana moment when we'll break through all that i'm going actually that's the trajectory you're going on these aren't the growing pains of a greater life this is what's going to happen if you keep going mm -hmm. down this line so the book is really for people who are in workplaces and universities and and the average church person who wants to read a shortish book about why does it feel like the heat's been turned up in the christian on the christian uh you know blowtorch or the blowtorch against the christians and why that's happened now, that's pretty the key, and what you can mm. do about it. Yeah. So that was your motivation. So one of my questions for you was that some Christians believe that this is a bit of a culture war, and if we don't win it, that's it, we're doomed. Like it's a zero-sum game. In fact, I think you use that terminology in your book. Could you unpack their point of view, and mm -hmm. what would you say to them? Well, it is a culture war. There's no doubt about that. It is. Anyone who says it's not a culture war is winning it right <laughs> yeah, that's the issue right it's it's never a culture war to those who are winning it it's just the way it should be and um so you you have this battle between epistemology how things are understood and known and what it means to be something and be a human in our current context especially what it means to be human in our current context so the culture war is left and right it's a progressive uh, versus conservative perspective but not everything in the cultural framework that we've had the last couple of hundred years has, is christian so we'd have to admit that some of the things we've got are christian but other things are just um ideas that have sprung from the freedom that christianity has given us in the western world so if you read tom holland's book he would say that the the west is firmly tied to its christian moorings 
it doesn't realize that uh, human rights aren't universal. They're things that are actually uh, brought in by the gospel. And uh, Glenn Scrivener, I don't know if you've spoken to Glenn Scrivener, but he's certainly worth a conversation. His new book, The Air We Breathe, uh, questions the nuns and the duns, as he calls them, those who are no religion and those who are done with it. What is the foundation belief of your human rights framework on equity, equality, freedom, justice, mercy? And he says they're Christian. They, they, they didn't come out of thin air. So what Christians who are in the culture wars are saying is if we don't hold to these things and fight for them legislatively, it'll become a zombie apocalypse and we'll lose. And we're seeing the same, you know, they're pitting against each other. But in one sense, what I'm saying is the church itself is a kingdom, God's expression of God's kingdom on earth that is over and against both progressive and conservative in different areas of life. So some of the things that conservatives do say is like it was better in the 50s. And I said, well, it depends who you were. You know, um, it doesn't always uh, run that way. And so Christians have to sort of set, set aside and go, we must stick to the Christian framework and ethic of the gospel in our church setting. But time in history has shown that there's very few times where the church has just been able to get on and do what it wishes to do with freedom. Uh, we've had a gift of this Western Christian framework for hundreds of years, but that's not universal around the world for Christians, and mm -hmm. it hasn't been there in all of time and space. The church was not birthed in a place of uh, liberalism. It was birthed in the Roman Empire, a place of crucifixion. And so the church has to be able to say, we want to stand up for what's true and right, and it will cost us, so we don't just keep our heads down and get into quietism and sort of buy 50 acres in the hills and put a chain mail fence around it and, you know, stock up on beans and spam and shotgun and wait for the... As apocalypse. tempting as that may be. <laughs> it, it is tempting, yeah. But the other thing you'd want to say in light of some of the abuse issues, if you've watched that movie from maybe 20 years ago, The Village, sin comes from within us as well. Mm -hmm. You can lock off as many boundaries as you want, but our propensity to sin is there and we will find new and imaginative ways of doing it. So the church has to, I think, own up to its own sins, but then say, at the same time, the cultural framework is, when it's post-Christian, don't expect it to keep running on the liberty and justice and forgiveness platform. It won't. But we will offer an alternative. And some people who are Christian will fight that culture war in the public square, and some people won't. And that's okay, each to their vocation. But if we lose it, We've, lo we've lost every level of it so far. However, as I've said about the sexual revolution, 60 years later, people are starting to ask some serious questions about the things that they thought that they were assured of. You're starting to see the cracks because bad ideas don't work. Mm -hmm. They just take a long time not to work sometimes. You know, going out, this is, you know, rock stars discover this to their, when they're in their 40s, that going out every night and getting absolutely done over on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday night and sleeping, going to bed at 4am and getting up at midday is fine. But the Rolling Stones don't do that now. They drink <laughs> green tea and go to bed early because bad ideas don't work <laughs> over time. Yeah. And I think the church can sit, can at least have a little bit of confidence that God's got this and that the, as the bad ideas don't work, we've got to be the place that's ready for uh, what the mess, I think. And I think we yeah. can do yeah, I wonder if 
some of the reaction from Christians is due to the fact that we just really want to live comfortable lives. It's so easy to live in a Judeo-Christian ethic when that's the way your culture lives and believes and you just blend in and have your family and you know your little house picket fence the whole shebang it's a lot scarier to live in the reality where that's not you know it's it's not easy where going to work can mean you might be fired for being a christian or you know it's a it's a lot more difficult and we just want to we just want to go back or grasp the things that make life here easy which that in itself it's got to call we've got to call into question because it's the Bible throughout the Bible, God does not promise that. Um, no, and, and the no, Bible very no. much promises a difficulty for Christians. I preached on one Peter four uh, just recently on those issues. I think the issue that you'd have to think about is that the bad life, that kind of shocking ethic that we're talking about, is is not a, as much a danger to most Christians as the good life. If you're exactly. if you're living out there on the edge, it's pretty noticeable. And if you wake up in the morning, you know, with uh, in a gutter and you don't know where you've been the last two days, you, you're not thinking you're kicking goals. No. But if you're a family who gradually drift away from being with God's people, whose family is discipled more by the good times you can have and the sports you can put them into and the good solid citizen you can make them with a you know, and with a good job and all these things. And the good life will take you away from Jesus every time. And Jesus himself says it. So mm -hmm. in the parable of the soils, it's there's persecution that can make you say, I'm chucking this Christian thing in. But the good life is just as uh, able to do it as anything. And I think mm -hmm. it's the good life that I've seen take people away from Jesus far much more than the bad life. In the, even though the bad life gets the headlines when I see friends whose kids perhaps go way off the rails on the, some of these issues or even the parents themselves go off the rails or change their perspective that makes the headlines what mm. doesn't make the headlines is the quiet drift towards yeah. every good thing that australia offers <laughs> yeah and australia does offer many many good things yeah. that's for sure it's, why would you want heaven when you got it here yeah. yeah so that begs the question how should we be living how could we be living as christians to mm. avoid both you know, being immersed in the culture and moving with the cultural drift towards the secular worldview mm. or doing the drift to just the comfortable life. We talk about worldview a lot, and I think world practice is as important as worldview. So when I speak about church, I say 70% of your Christian life will be turning up. <laughs> just turn up week in, week out. Just turn up to your group. Just turn up to church. You need that in your life because there's a discipleship program Monday to Saturday that a thin evangelical light occasionally turning up on Sunday discipleship program won't touch. It, it, you, I am cautious about it. I don't want us to become ninja Christians where we just shut the <laughs> gates and we're out every night with other Christians doing something different all the time because I, that was my experience that got us burned i think was the response and i think this is one of the reasons why there are so many of these tight abuse cases coming up is that the response to the current cultural shift towards secularism is to really become ninja christians in such tight communities that if you break away from that community or you fall afoul of it 
you kick to the curb? I think the answer is just to dial up gently for most people, uh, just their Christian level of discipleship to admit that, okay, so they both have to work, the mum and dad, if there is a mum and dad, and their kids do have to go to school and have to do a certain amount of activities. But let's just dial up a little bit around the edges, how we can disciple them a bit more and call them to a little bit more. And over time, we keep doing that because you don't go to lift, you know, you don't go into uh, lifting weights or doing CrossFit by lifting the heaviest weights on the first day. You've got to build your muscles up. And I think Christians mm -hmm. need to rebuild their muscles about discipleship. And that takes time because if you just go straight to the hardcore ninja Christian thing, there'll be 20 left of you. We should mm -hmm. stop despising the other 200 people who aren't ready yet to do the hardcore thing. And I just, Jesus doesn't despise them. It's uh, the parts of the body that are weaker that are treated with more honor. Mm -hmm. And so the gospel of grace woos people to transform their lives. And of course, there's discipline in that as well. But it's, it's that desire to be changed and what God offers in his gospel and through his people that I think will change people. And so for me, it's about getting the church right and assuming, as I do, when people come to our church, I'm a pastor, that they're coming as consumers to begin with. And I want to turn them into worshippers. Well, they're worshipping something because people come for all sorts of reasons to church, perhaps the preaching, maybe the kids program, perhaps to find community. But their first question is, what is this doing for me? Rather than, am I going to become part of the body here that will selflessly serve and be challenged by other parts of the body? That's not people's default perspective when they come to church. And churches tap into that. We can offer you this. We can offer you that. Yeah. And the websites all look bright and shiny, which then raises the second question. If you're not bright and shiny and your life is falling apart, is church a safe enough place to go to? It should be. And I think for me, when my parents split up, the interesting thing for me was the next Sunday we turned up to church, I felt shame mm. for nothing that I'd done. But I just felt that the framework of the church, unspoken, didn't have a category for where our lives were at at that time. Mm. And in fact, you know, that made sense because we all ended up going to different churches for quite a period of time after that my mum included she'd still go to the regular church but at night she went somewhere else and I ended up going to a Pentecostal church where everyone was pretty broken up and it felt a much safer place to be because there were no airs and graces about where we were at mm. and I think that was I think the church has to be have such a theology of sin that its own sin makes it mourn and other people's sin doesn't make it shocked yeah and my own sin needs to make me mourn because I think when that falls off the radar, we're, we're in trouble. Yeah. So how how do we do that as Christians in a church, congregants, staff, everybody? Well, that's probably the, um, I started answering that question in my first book and I'm writing about it in my second book, I think, because the first question in my first book, the primary question was, how do we get here? And I touched on where are we going and how do we do it? Um, and I'm writing about that in the second book. And it, because my experience is that many books that critique the cultural framework very well offer a very thin ecclesiology of how we go forward. Um, it doesn't say what, what should we do. 
And because I do think that the church is the strategy, uh, the question is going to be around what does church need to look like going forward? One of the things I need, it needs to do, it, it needs to be a place that you stay for a long period of time in the one church. One of my experiences with church is people in their 50s coming to the church that I was pastoring who have been to seven different churches in the last 20 years. Wow. And if they've got a bunch of teenagers, um, they've been to, uh, what, those teenagers have had a three-year experience in any one church where you cannot thicken up relationships. So I think that's problematic. Uh, uh, part of it is you cannot live discreet lives as Christians. Part of it has to be how you do hospitality with other Christians in that other the, the children see what it looks like to sit around a table with other adults, other Christians who are their spiritual mothers and fathers, to sit around the table with single people, divorced people, old people, it's noted to me that my daughter, who's quite a strong young Christian woman and has lots of non-Christian friends, that they're, they've been very surprised by her in the last few years. And some of them have, have had big life struggles post-school. That My daughter goes to weddings of people who are in their 20s to late 20s to 30s. She has friendship groups of people who are a lot older than her. And they all live in the same band of age cohort. But the church has enabled my daughter through people who discipled her, who were maybe women seven years older than her, through to other family members who are strong networked with us as, as Christians in our church. It's enabled her to move through um, the generations quite well. So to the point that she then starts to disciple a 14-year-old now, she's 21. And I, I think it's that level of thick relationship that over time starts to make a difference because our world is struggling with loneliness. 30% of mm -hmm. Australians live alone and loneliness is a key issue in our culture at the moment. Um, people don't feel they have a sense of community. So I think critical to it is going to a church and staying there long enough. If, if it's theologically sound and a safe place to be, I think that mm -hmm. would, but we move quickly and we move around the place quite a lot. So I think we need to think about that as well. How should I, can church be a primary priority for me staying in a location? Would mm. I choose that over the job? And the other thing might be is know the level that you can go to in your workplace, which won't damage other things in your life. Uh, you can't have it all. Mm. There's a there's a cost-benefit analysis for absolutely everything in your life, including your work. But your office will never tell you that. It'll tell you that you subtly that you find identity and meaning and purpose the further up the food chain you go. Now, I think you can go up the food chain, but if, if it's costing you your godliness or your family life at home, then you really need to think about it. And we live in the current culture in which women are now being told that even having a baby is an unsafe thing. It's a dangerous thing to have a baby. Mm -hmm. And you should, you know, it's about work and all these sorts of things. And my wife, you know, is a clinical psychologist and I looked after our daughter when she was two while my wife worked. So I don't have a straight line how this is to be delineated, but we've got to stop listening to some of the messages of the world because we're nervous about offending the world's framework of how relationships are put together. And I go, what we need to do, the second thing we need to do, if we're to do relationships well, we have to be able to say to the current framework, Actually, our vision of where humanity is going and our vision of the good life doesn't match yours. We've got to be very clear about our eschatology. 
Uh, and I think heaven's fallen off the map for a lot of Christians, mm. especially in the West. I'm sure it's not fallen off the map in Afghanistan for Christians, but it certainly has for us. And I think unless we grasp the fact that we are receiving a kingdom that will one day come to us, it's very easy to get hooked into everything that's here. There's nothing that'll sober you up more than the realization that Jesus is coming back or when someone your age dies. So when Shane Warne died, it was a moment for men my age to ask serious questions about their mortality. And as a Christian, thinking about the fact this man had everything and then died and left everything behind that he would treasure made me think I better make sure I stick with Jesus because when I die, if I treasure him, I'll have everything with me mm. when I die. Mm. And I think that's critical. So I think there's something about that that we need to do. There's something about leaning deeply into history for Christians because you'll notice that many young people, not just young people, there's a lot of evangelicals who are becoming Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic because yeah, they think I've noticed that. You've noticed that, yeah. yeah. And one of the reasons is because the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church go, here we are, we've been around all these years, we're not changing. Uh, we don't even change the look of our building. We're not putting it in the same colours that the Commonwealth Bank might be in with a slogan mm -hmm. that looks similar to the Commonwealth Bank out the front. <laughs> it's, this is who we are and we've been here a long time and we'll outlast you. So one of the things I think we need to do is say we can outlast the culture. We, we are the people of the future. So let's keep going together because everyone else seems all over the place at the moment. Um, so I think that's a critical issue. Uh, so that those are practical things. I think bite-sized ways of doing it is saying, just see how you can do a few more relationships with church people that are intentional. And when you get together for a meal as Christians, just make sure that at least some of the conversations on, around that table over that evening would betray the fact that you belong to Jesus or trust in him. Yeah. And I think that there are plenty of people in churches who can lead those things well and be the, uh, I guess, the matriarchs and patriarchs of a household table that can do that for people. But hospitality is absolutely critical to it in an age when we're struggling to do things like that. But in this fast-paced life, just find ways to make, just dial it up a little bit. You don't have to go all ninja. <laughs> That's yeah. what I would say to people. Yeah. And there's a there's a degree of intentionality in that. So I think I think the go all ninja thing is what people fear mm. is going to be expected of them. But if you see it as little steps, um it's doable. It's it's doable to invite somebody even once a term when you've never done that before and slowly adjust. Yeah. On yeah. a Friday night, on a Friday afternoon when people are coming for dinner and you're tired, you never want them to be coming. But after it, you're glad they did, right? Yeah. And, uh, but it's also perhaps, and this is with our time and our money, if you are someone who gives financially to church and organisations, you kind of budget out your money at the start of the year. This is how much I'm going to be giving. But we don't budget our time the same way when perhaps we should. Like, this is how much work really can demand of me. And these are the activities I will let my kids do. But if I look at my diary and the six different things that they're doing, that's probably not a, a fiscally good use of my time in the long term. It's going to crush someone. <laughs> it's going to de derail some of us. And there's no margin for anyone else. There's no margin yeah. for the stranger or the new family that comes to church. When a new family comes to church in Australia, I've noticed this, and it's been commented to me about Australia, 
um, the people are friendly, but they're not totally willing to become your friends because they're too busy. Mm. My experience in English churches uh, generally has been a little better than that. I think my experience across a range of churches in England over a couple of years that I lived there was very much that they were, I, I could, there was one church I was in in my early 20s that I didn't have a Sunday where I wasn't invited out for a meal afterwards by a family in the church because they made time for that. They decided that is what we do. We're not rushing off to do our own thing on Sunday. We will have the people of God over for a meal. And I yeah. think that's a, that's a good way to operate. Absolutely. Towards the end of your book, you, you say in terms of how we are viewed by the secular world, you reckon we should be confusing, intriguing, attractive, and compelling. What does mm -hmm. this mean? Well, it means that we we can't be categorized and put in a box by the world. So, and you, Tim Keller talks about that um, when it comes to social justice issues, we should look progressive, well, technically progressive. And when it comes to ethical issues, we should look conservative. But the early church was that as well, that it took in the it took in the refugee. And it uh, rescued the uh, um, abandoned babies, which is uh, the modern progressive conservative paradigm shift, I suppose. Mm. And I, I think that's what we want to be. Because, look, I have a friend in my, a running friend, and I, I mentioned it in the book, but I'll elaborate on it. She's a lapsed Irish Catholic. And there's no one as non-Christian as a lapsed Irish Catholic, let me tell you. <laughs> And she said during the pandemic, when I was out running with her one day, that, you know, you go for a long run with people for 20 to 30 Ks and you talk about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And the run club we belong to is run by a Christian, sort of sub-elite runner, who um, runs it very well and he runs a church as well from his home. So everyone's invited to everything all of the time. It's a very open setting. She lives on the edge of that group. And she said during the pandemic, I envy, she used the word envy, you Christians in church. I said, why is that? I said, you're a lapsed Irish Catholic. You can't envy Christians. I didn't say that. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Um, and she said, yeah, because you, you've got each other and you you hang out with each other all the time. She said, my mom's in, in, and dad are in Ireland and she's here with her hubby and they had a little baby here. And I can't get back. I don't have that community. Now, she was welcomed into that community, but she still recognized there was something about the Christian community and I've seen it when someone died, uh, a parent of one of the people from school died, I was in like the, the grandparent, and they were busy and harassed. And it was the Christians who they knew that brought meals around and said, I'll take the kids for you. And they noted that. They said, your church people are very different to the other people. We just kind of avoided them. Mm. And I think that's, it's those small things that we do life this way. We are a different community to you. And we're not noted just for our sexual ethical framework, but for the way we love and the way we mm. serve. And I think we serve other people as well, but primarily the church, you know, looks after the, especially the household of God. Mm. It's, a, it's a different way of living. And it's an extension of the Jewish uh, Old Testament communities who wherever they were said they live differently. And as someone said, the, the difference between a Christian and a Jew today is that a Christian parent says to their kid, now go to school and try to fit in. And the Jewish father says to his dad, go out there and be different. And <laughs> it's that stance. And if you expect the world to be a little bit hostile towards you, you'll be fine. But if you've set up mm. a framework that uh, this is our gig, this is our patch, 
you've got problems. So stance is an interesting issue. I use it like this. You can, if, you're, if your team is playing a home game, you behave a different way at the local pub, standing on the table with two beers and shouting. Uh, as you know, before you go after the game, I wouldn't do that, but you know, that's what people do. And But if you're playing an away game and you go up somewhere else to play the match and you're a visiting supporter, you mind your P's and Q's yeah. in someone else's city. And I think that's where Christians are struggling. It's an away game. Mm-hmm. And our feeling in our gut is this has been a home game for so long. We have the right to say how this should go. And suddenly we don't. And the stance that you take will determine how you respond. If you go, okay, it's an away game. I've got to be careful here. I've got to think about how I engage with people in a way that I perhaps didn't when the culture was non-Christian in a very Christian way, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It's now non-Christian in a very different way to what it was 40, 50 years ago because the pole star of Christianity has been taken out and it isn't seen as the place from which you judge yourself. Mm-hmm. So even non-Christians 40, 50 years ago were non-Christian in a way that was referenced to Christianity and now it's mm-hmm. not. And that's yeah. very different. So we're in an away game stance and the preaching in our churches has to preach to its people as if they are in an away game stance. Mm. And it needs to deal with the stuff of exile and exodus in one Peter. It needs to deal with the book of Daniel. It needs to deal with suffer and our glory later because those things aren't in the fine print. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've been encouraged by your book and a lot of the, um, the direction you've gone in not just explaining that so well but also explaining what it looks like to live in this world and one of the concepts that really struck me was I suppose fitting into that statement confusing intriguing attractive and compelling but there there is um there is space to be able to say I I hold to this biblical ethic which is completely counter-cultural at the moment which is offensive to the culture and yet also be as we are Christians and as we're called to be gracious and caring and loving. And so mm. this really offensive position that we seem to hold juxtaposed next to the, this kindness and grace and, and warmth and loving, you know, all, all the good things that we should be as Christians is confusing. And yet the secular world will only be exposed to that if they're exposed to us. And yes. so that yeah. idea of being in a uh, your your ninja state of like little conclave of just Christians, we're never going to reach the world. They're only going to hear the moral ethic standard or stand that we take, and they're not going to see that worked out in their lives and not have you know the the gospel shared with them in the context of grace. It's always going to be just political. Yeah, and you know people will try to push it politically. I think, uh, onto Christians as well. This is just a political thing. But I think it, Christians are compelling in how they live their lives to non-Christians. And I think you just got to give it time, right? Mm. Because you already see that the culture war isn't just affecting, it's a Christian perspective or a secular perspective. It's not that. In the very issues around the trans issues at the moment, the whole thing is blowing up, not from Christians, but mm. from within the communities themselves. Um, and part of that is because you know, the, the whole idea that if we could get rid of religion, we'd get rid of a vengeful God. Who wants a vengeful God? I'll tell you who wants a vengeful God. I do, because that's the safety net to me carrying out vengeance. God, mm-hmm. so it says, you know, it says in the scriptures, 
leave room for God's vengeance. Well, if you take God out of the picture, the only place you can do vengeance is on Twitter or cancel or whatever. Mm. And we haven't gotten rid of God from the public square and found that we live in this beautiful, harmonious, forgiving setting. We live in a vengeful society where vengeance is back to the, I guess, the um, emotional equivalent of you said something wrong about my you know, sister, I'm going to slaughter your tribe. That, you know, we're back there, except on social media and relationships. And it's it's so hostile. And Christians can show a different way. Now, you might lose your job. And this is what mm. I would say to people. And the, the fear is not that we become unemployed. The fear is that we become unemployable, that when the HR department is phoned up by your next job that you've applied for, because you didn't get the position that, you'd apl- that you went for and said, oh, they, they don't like me here anymore. They're never going to say it's because he's a Christian. They're just going to say, oh, it doesn't fit the culture here. Mm. It wasn't a team player. And you're suddenly unemployable. And I think Rod Dreyer was right in his book, The Benedict Option, that Christians are going to find themselves locked out of certain uh, jobs, sort of professions. And that's happening. And Christian schools are going to struggle because mm. they are the gateway to young people's lives. And a hard secular culture, as you see in Victoria and increasingly in Western Australia, which is taking on Victoria's laws, will not be able to cope with what I call alternate ethical communities. And churches are alternate ethical communities, and so are Christian schools. Mm. And the one they can get closest to at the moment is schools, (laughs) and they are. So the question I'd have to have even about our education is, how will you educate your children in the next 50 to 60 years if these things keep going? I don't think it's the role of a Christian kid in a school to be the test case missionary for all of their friends because the discipleship program goes the other way far more quickly, far more quickly. Yeah, Yeah. I can attest to that, both having been in school um, but also taught in school for years. That was definitely one of the, actually, that was one of the reasons we homeschooled. I agree. And I don't think bricks and mortar is the future for Christian schools, to be honest, because I think the government over, that's another question I'm going to deal with in my next book. How will we as Christians deal with government overreach Mm. and corporate overreach? So corporations are linking with governments in order to shape the vision of what human life looks like. It's a totalizing perspective. And so it isn't even government that's driving this agenda. It's large corporations are saying we're the moral um, arbiters of this cultural framework. And we'll take that job over from the church or religion or whatever it is. And they're doing a very progressive job of it. (laughs) Yeah, which I've always found really bizarre because the very progressive view seems counter-capitalist. So I don't know how they can sustain that model. Yeah, is it David Brooks who calls them um, bobos, bohemian bourgeois? The, the capitalism thing is, you know, it drives the machine. And Christians have just got to be as much aware of that as of the consumer model of things as much as anything. So it's not just all about sexual ethics. But the higher good now is, is about uh, identity, questions of identity. It's not about questions of uh, social justice for the poor in the mm. workplace. It's just not. And... The companies are driving that agenda very, very strongly. And because culture is upstream of politics, um, governments get voted in, governments get voted out. But Disney movies still say that the uh, the goal of life is to follow your heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so d- d- you do you. That's central. But workplaces are struggling at the moment because I think they're struggling to get people to come back to the office because there's a pushback against this bring your whole self to work. 
Well, why? Why would I bring my whole self to work? You want a level of buy-in from me that won't be there when you fire me because of the KPIs. Mm. Um, you want my whole self at work, but if my whole self doesn't agree with your values framework, you'll cut me. You know, so even younger people today are going, not buying into that. There's a thing mm. called quiet quitting, work to rule, not even work to rule, just slack off as much as you can, just do as little as you can so that it keeps you under the... I don't think Christians can do that either because no. we have a master above us who watches us. There's no um, situation where there's an audience of one in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And so Christians can actually ironically be the best workers in that setting as well because they'll do their work diligently in a Daniel kind of way. In Babylon. Yeah. And possibly have a Daniel kind of experience. Uh, just read today about Facebook chopping a whole heap of, of jobs for people uh, based on an algorithm so they were told they were randomly chosen but i'm fairly <laughs> sure the algorithm probably would have checked how much a uh, quiet quitting they were doing in order to weed out the ones that actually aren't being particularly productive yeah. perhaps quiet quitting won't last too long mm. <laughs> not with our world economy at the moment where jobs oh. are just being slashed left right and center um what else would you say is on your radar at the moment as a christian dad husband pastor what, what are you finding yourself yeah. thinking about a lot and wanting to communicate or do i'd say if you're a young couple get married and have kids <laughs> and that, that sounds counterintuitive to the fact that i got married at nearly 29 and our youngest was born when i was 40 but i'm doing a wedding on saturday and there's something um almost uh, transgressive about getting married younger and having kids uh kids are seen as a threat to your uh individual happiness at the moment and marriage is seen as that problem as well but we we should be leading the way in that i'm not saying that you have to go out and get married immediately if you're 20 because there's lots of bad cases of get married right now or else but demographics will change things people stop having babies when they run out of hope that's mm -hmm. why other cultures have more children because they have a, a bigger view of the world than perhaps we have which is ours has shrunk but i think it's also a case of Older families in churches supporting young people in churches who are getting married and saying, get alongside us and we'll show you how, how we do arguments <laughs> <laughs> or how we solve them and how we do other bits of life. But that behooves the older people to be a little bit together and not just leaving each other when they hit 55 and mm. their kids are at home. I'm 55 in two weeks. I, that's not my intention. Uh, I'm just <laughs> saying uh, it's my age cohort that I see doing it. Mm. Whoa, yeah. what's going on? And it's modeling those things together that's going to be critical. And I think the other thing too is for churches themselves to find ways to speak about, to honor the workplace of their of their members and not say everything is about you doing more in here in church. It's about saying, we'll ask you to do one and one, one thing on Sunday and one other thing during the week, and that's it. Mm. And leave you space to do what you think is good as a Christian in the cultural frame, whether that's hospitality with, or whether that's having Christians and non-Christians over, or whether that's being involved on the board of another Christian organization or being involved in, um, you know, uh, sort of, fostering children and our, our current uh, the church that i planted several of the families have fostered children at cost to themselves mm -hmm. and the church decided then they would support those families by helping look after those kids but also by making and providing meals 
to be stored for the organization that these people foster from. So that every month, 20 people get together and they make a whole bunch of meals for foster families. And not a Christian organization, but that's been a constant ongoing thing. That that makes a difference. That makes that really a huge does. difference. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's all those little things, I think, that, that really matter. And, uh, so all those ideas, are they going to be added to your new book? Yeah, uh, there's a lot of them that are. Uh, I, this is the thing about the first book that people said. So you've touched on some of the stuff, but can you thicken it up? So really, yeah. I'm, I'm, what I'm saying, the uh, shameless plug, uh, yeah. imagine the DeLorean car from Back to the Future drops on your church doorstep in 2022 from 2052. And a pastor who looks 30 years older than your pastor, that might make him very old, um, <laughs> jumps out and says, quick, you haven't got a moment to lose. Get in. I want to show you what 2052 looks like and what a faithful, flourishing community of Christians looks like in 2052 and what you need to put in place to get there. Mm. Because you can't take out of the bank what you haven't put in. So the time to start changing these things is now. Because when Daniel discovered that the king's edict said that he must pray to the king for 30 days in Daniel chapter 6, it says Daniel went up to his room and did what he had done previously, which was to open the windows towards Jerusalem and pray to the rubble heap in Jerusalem from whence his hope lay. But he did what he, he didn't go, well, crumbs, that's bad. I better start praying to God. He just mm. did what he did previously. And so Christians, if we're, if things change badly and they go worse and the war in Ukraine makes privation and, uh, you know, supply chains even more difficult, let's keep living like we lived previously, which was not to excess, not finding our meaning and purpose in the holidays we get, not needing the latest everything. Let's live as we lived previously. But if we're not living like that and trauma comes, we're going to be, ah. So mm. I, I think that's going to be critical. Absolutely. Mm. Do you have a title yet for the new book? Well, I'd like the idea of future proof. And there is a, uh, and I like the idea of the, uh, does the future have a church? But that title was taken, I think. So I've got all these oh. ideas about future. Um, and we'll probably have a picture of Marty McFly on the front. No, it won't have a picture of Marty <laughs> McFly. But, um, or me as Marty McFly looking, you know, trying to hover on a hoverboard. You know. <laughs> that would be a lot of fun <laughs> a vastly different cover to your black and uh, red and white i know being the bad guys well i'm looking forward to it when are you hoping for that to eventually hit the shelves i don't think it'll happen till the middle of next year um I've, my problem at the moment has been that perth was the gilded cage which was locked out of everywhere and i'm paying the price for that by doing all of the events and speaking engagements that i promised the last year and a half, they they yeah. they stacked up like pies on the <laughs> conveyor belt and now they're falling off and I'm trying to juggle everything that I'd promised to do. But I'm getting there. It's yeah. always easy to write the, the second one or else it's the most, it's the difficult second album problem. And it's also, I write, I now know how they want me to write. So that's, they balance okay. each other out. But okay. the, the other thing I'd say is, and perhaps is just throwing this in, um, Christians can be the non-anxious presence in their settings. Mark Sayers has a book called A Non-Anxious Presence. And Milton Friedman, the family systems therapist, said that the person who's most influential in a family or most influential in a work setting is not the head of the family necessarily, nor the CEO in the setting, but the person who is non-anxious, who people go to because they know that they bring clarity. And I think Christians can be that. And I think that's going to be critical going forward. 
Any last thoughts you want to share? Yeah, I think I'd say um, to people, uh, history isn't a cable car towards a particular future. It's a roller coaster. And we've seen ups and downs. Secularism isn't the, you know, secularism without God in the picture isn't the uh, inevitable conclusion of where we're at at the moment, because that's not how history's worked. There have been great revivals. The tide comes back in. When the tide goes out, it certainly comes back in. And it God is the God of history and the tide could come back in and we could see a revival and a great transformation. We don't know. It, at the signs don't point to it to being anytime soon. But then again, that's how God works. When it's darkest, light comes. The mm. people that walk in darkness have seen a great light. That's the arrival of Jesus. And every point where his spirit has worked in a setting to bring revival, it's been at a dark time. So let's trust that God yeah. can do that. Yeah, and be excited, I think, even. I, I, I find myself as I'm looking at our culture and just looking at the oppression and all the, the you know, the multifaceted sides of mm. um, pressing in on, on the Christians. And it's it's easy to become despondent and overwhelmed, but actually that's exactly where God has placed us and yeah. we're, we're part of the bigger story, how good it is to know that we can trust him even in the hard things and that we are very much part of the, future revival to to come because it's in response to where we're at that you, you see that so keep on keeping on faithfully raising our kids getting that's married right. having them yeah that's <laughs> right Indeed. raising them in the lord so that's exactly what it feels like there's no secret source it just mm. it's the obvious stuff i think that's what i would say yeah <laughs> it's the obvious stuff thank you so much no, thanks taryn it's been a great uh conversation really like leaned a lot We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Lydia Project. We would love you to share this episode with others, whether that be by word of mouth, social media, or leaving a review on iTunes. You can find us on most platforms using the handle at TLPCWCW. Music is Wholesome 7 by Dave Depper, and voiceover is by me, Jennifer Mary. 